Some years ago, when I was in university and I was having a summer break, I came back with a friend who was in my third year. He was a Malay friend who had uh, connections to some folks in Johor. And he decided, hey Ron, mari kita pergi uh, Pulau Rawa. Uh, Ron, come along with me for a holiday uh, to Pulau Rawa. Pulau Rawa is an island off the coast of uh, Johor. It's a small, tiny little dot and it's a private island. Apparently, it's owned by some Johor royalty and you can only get in there if you, if you call ahead and you know the people there. So we went there and the first day was wonderful, beautiful coral. And the next day, he said, Ron, let's go on this boat ride. Just go for a boat to a neighboring island. I said, sure, fine. Five of us get onto this little boat with a moto outboard and we go off, we spend time on the island, but on the way back, suddenly, it became very dark and the rain started coming down. And to make things worse, it started getting more windy. It got very gushy and some of the people who were on the boat who are not used to boat rides started getting rather green and pale. Uh, in fact, uh, they, they felt as if they were going to vomit. Now, we were, we were basically trying to run ahead of a storm because at the back of us, it was all dark. At the front of us, it was bright uh, because the, the clouds were pushing and the wind was coming from uh, pretty much behind us from the cold front going to the hot side. And so we were there holding on to this boat, willing the boat to go faster because the waves were coming up and we're saying, we better get ahead of the storm. But lo and behold, suddenly the engine sputtered and died. And we were beginning to look at each other, what is going on? We started, you know, in a way, panicking a little. And at that point in time, my friends, the other three or four of them who could not take the weather, started reeling over and vomiting over the side. I was observing our boat guy. He was a bit uh, shaky, but he seemed very calm about what he was doing. He opened up the cap. He took out a new bottle of gas and slowly started pouring in the gas. Now, I don't know whether you've ever tried doing this, but to do this in mid-sea with the rain and the winds and the blowing uh, thing, and to have this rocking motion is to have gas or gasoline in your boat <laughs> with all the water coming in. Halfway through, the man stops. He takes a little kayong, uh, we call it, you know, that, that, that little scoop, and he passes one down to the, to the friends in front and said, tolong kayong, <laughs> because it was filling up with water. They were all worried and panicking, looking at the storm and the rain getting heavier and heavier. And they were all so afraid. One person suddenly jumped up and his face was white. And the thing he said was, I saw something go under the boat. We just ignored the person, <laughs> continued scooping out. After, uh, after what was maybe five to seven minutes, which for us was like half an hour, <laughs> it felt that long, he finally filled it up, opened the cap, cranked, 
three times and the boat started going again and we all heaved a sigh of relief. I suppose that might be one of my biggest storms where we were at risk maybe in the middle of the sea. Uh, but I don't know about you whether you've had any such similar storm. My only other biggest storm was ever being stuck in Hong Kong during a Flag 7 storm. Uh, that's a, a typhoon scale uh, storm. I was in a building and the building was moving and we were all in quarantine. Nevertheless, it's not about my stories that you want to hear, but what does God have to say to us in the text today in Mark chapter 4? Will you bow our heads as we come to the Lord and ask for His wisdom? Let us pray. Dear Lord, we've all encountered a storm at some point or other in our life. But this morning, we want to come to you, Lord, to hear what you have to say about your power over storms and over lives, Lord. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41 is the first miracle out of a series of miracles that Jesus does. It is a first miracle over nature, over the element itself. In fact, this passage, if you were to read it, you should be reading it from Mark chapter 4, verse 35, all the way to Mark chapter 6, uh, verse 6a. Interestingly, during all these passages, the themes of death and desperation and the contrast between fear and faith are juxtaposed between the two. You will continuously hear this recurring theme each time you come to this particular few passages. Just to give you an idea, Jesus had just been teaching uh, at the boat. But prior to that, he had demonstrated power over sickness. In Mark chapter 1, right at the outset of this, we hear about how Jesus commanded a demon who was in the synagogue to be quiet, to be still, and to come out of that person. So Jesus has power over sickness. He has, in this coming passage, demonstrated power over nature. In the following passage, after he arrives on the other side of the, uh, the Lake of Galilee, or what we call the Sea of Galilee, he encounters the demoniac called Legion. And so Jesus, in all his miracles, is not dealing with just simple phenomena. He's dealing with a, a furious storm. He's dealing with a demon-possessed man, not one demon, but a whole legion of them in one person. He demonstrates his power over disease. Because following this particular uh, miracle over the demoniac legion, Jesus uh, heals a woman with an issue of blood of 12 years and he demonstrates power over death by raising Jairus' uh, daughter to life. In each of this, you will notice the theme of death, fear, and a question that recurringly keeps being asked, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Why are you afraid? And so I'd like to, to put this context in this background, and, and I love this particular passage. It's one of the few, maybe out of four or five, 
uh, scenes where it is over the Lake of Galilee or in the area of Galilee. And did you realize that if you were to read this all the way in chapter 6, in spite of all his miracles, in spite of all his calls to faith, this particular section of, of the text ends with the idea that he is rejected by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he is rejected in his own hometown. It's quite amazing that we would expect that someone with Jesus' power would be received with joy and yet every time he is received with terror. The villagers in the garrison area tell Jesus, please go away, you're bad for business. We've lost 1,000 pigs. You're bad for business. And people run away from Jesus. The, the, the disciples are terrified when they see him, what he has done. How do we counter this terror and fear with faith and trust? This is a question we want to address uh, in this particular passage. So let me begin by asking this diagnostic question. Why are you so afraid? Now, Jesus asked this question somewhere in verse 40 of this particular passage. Why are you so afraid? He doesn't say, why are you afraid? Which tends to indicate to us, yes, fear is a, a natural phenomenon that we have. But why are you so afraid? Now, notice, I'm not dealing here with phobias. Uh, what's the difference between a phobia and a fear? Phobias are fears, but phobias generally come from past experience which has scarred a person where they exercise very little self-control. An example of a phobia, for example, might be where you're suddenly walking in the dark and a dog suddenly jumps on you and bites you. Now, during that period of time, you might have fear, you might have panic, you might be totally afraid of this, but it doesn't mean that you have a phobia of dogs. Okay? It doesn't mean that you would have a phobia of dogs. You would develop a phobia if after that event, for the rest of your life, every time you come to a dog, you're very fearful and you exercise great difficulty uh, overcoming this fear. So that's the distinction between phobia and fear. But some of us have what we might call crippling fear. They encounter something which they can no longer respond. I've encountered this before in counselling with some men and women who in the face of absolute fear just went silent as if they'd lost their voice. You hear this often in accounts of rape or abuse. It says, why didn't you fight? Why didn't you put up a struggle? And it's very sad because sometimes when you go to a court case and you listen to this, people are saying this was, uh, this was consensual. It was agreed to because you did not put up a fight. Failing to recognize that some of the psychological traumas that people encounter is that when you are so fearful, you just don't fight. You just respond by going limp and being unable to fight back. Jesus asks again, why are you so afraid? 
The summary of what we have just read, and I'd like you to have your Bible uh, text in front of you so that you can follow this, in 4 verse 35. Uh, in verse 35 says, Jesus says to the people, let us go over to the other side. Now, why did I want to put it there as a summary? One, it is by Jesus' invitation. It is by Jesus' invitation that they are making this journey. And so they took him along, they being the disciples. Now you, you recall that some of the disciples are fishermen. And so they are professionals, they know their job. They are taking this carpenter, a guy who's not a fisherman, onto their boat to go across the sea or the lake of Galilee. Now it's called the the lake or sea because it is the largest mass of fresh water uh, that is below uh, sea level, close to about 700 meters below the sea level. And so there's something unique about the geography uh, of the Lake of Galilee. It's so big that they consider it a sea, but it is a body of fresh water that is the lowest uh, under the sea at this particular point that is still fresh water. And because it is geographically like that, uh, there are certain hills that are nearby, uh, down the south, where sudden gusts of wind would come into this depression. Some of you uh, are geologists or some of you uh, do uh, weather analysis, you would note that when you have uh, high and low regions and the contrast, uh, storms happen very suddenly. And so these expert fishermen knew that these things do happen. But according to the commentaries and the, and the studies, they say that this normally doesn't happen at night. It happens during the day when the heat of the sun tends to cause these fluctuations in temperature, causing the wind to blow. So this instead is during the night and they think, okay, we'll be safe. So these bunch of professional fishermen take Jesus, carpenter, across during the night. And verse 37 says, a furious squall. Now I have uh, italicized and bolded there. It's a furious squall indicating something in the Greek which we don't see. It is this word called mega. Megalan. Uh, you know, uh, when nowadays, the word mega is used so often that it's uh, often misunderstood. Mega is big, huge, bigger than big. So uh, in KL, the Mid Valley Mega Mall, 3,000 parking spaces. <laughs> That's, you talk about its size purely from its parking space. It's a huge thing. But this word mega is used three times in this short four or five passages. It's a mega squall. So it's not just a small storm. It is a huge, uh, unexpected storm. And in the midst of this, in verse 38, is this term that it says, Jesus is sleeping. And the disciples rebuke Jesus. I'm just going to go to the actual text itself. Verse 38 says, Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. Wow, it's like a holiday cruise. 
The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, um, in drama, uh, we have this term context, text, and subtext. Context is the situation. Context is they're on a boat, there's a storm. Okay? The context, the surrounding. The text is, teacher, don't you care if we drown? But the subtext is, how do you say it? What is the emotion underneath the text? Is, you know, do you imagine a situation where, the, where Peter, the, the chief fisherman and the chief apostle, goes to Jesus and say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Or do you imagine Peter going, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Sorry, I'm trying to wake some people up. <laughs> what is the text underlying that? And so many commentators have said, this is one instance where the disciples are rebuking Jesus. Oi, we are about to die. And remember this, right? These are professional fishermen with a carpenter in there. <laughs> Now, you, you recall the story I told you earlier on about me being on a boat to an island. We are all tourists, travellers. We're not familiar with the sea. But the guy who is the boatman, he knows the conditions of the sea. And although he's a bit unnerved by it, he's relatively calm. But these are grown men, professional fishermen, who know how serious the problem is. And obviously, many would have died before. But Jesus is just sleeping. Now, I'm going to pause here a moment at, at, at verse, uh, verse 38 and take one principle from this. Uh, that first principle is that obeying Jesus means following Him, sometimes even into a storm. I repeat that. Huh? Obeying Jesus sometimes, uh, uh, obeying Jesus means following Him and sometimes even into a storm. Not always, but sometimes. Now, why is this a particularly important thing uh, to note? Many of us, sometimes when we're trying to evangelize or we're trying to convert someone, we tell them, uh, believe in Jesus and everything will be okay. Believe in Jesus and He will heal you. Believe in Jesus and all your financial problems will be taken away because He is a God who intends to prosper you. He is a God who has a good plan for you. And so when the person comes across the first storm in the life, in other words, the financial problem doesn't disappear, maybe grows even bigger, or the cancer that they were praying for develops from stage 1 into stage 4, then they say, wow, <laughs> what kind of God is this? Why do we believe in this God? And I wanted to highlight to you there, Jesus was the one who invited and asked these disciples or followers, follow me, let's go across, you take me across, but follow me, I want to go there. They're the ones who want to go. And so what this should come across to you as a first principle, when we follow Him, even into a storm, storms are not necessarily a sign of disobedience or punishment. 
I know it's very ingrained in uh, Chinese and Indian and Muslim and Asian culture. Any problem that occurs, uh, something you did, uh, something your family did, uh, something your ancestor did, uh, is all their fault or, or your fault. But it is a punishment from God. So you can imagine them looking at Jesus on the cross, hanging and dying, being dried out of his blood. Something you did. Lah. You are the leader of the devils, Belzebub. You are the one who is coming from this line of adulterous people. Your mother was a person who slept around. And Joseph uh, couldn't, couldn't take it. I mean, imagine the, 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 the things that go through people's minds. Storms, particularly bad things that happen to people, are not necessarily a sign of disobedience or punishment. I'm saying what it is not first. I, I need to say this because in a lot of uh, wrecked faith, uh, for a period of time, I was in Sremban and some members of the congregation uh, would talk to me about somebody who had left the faith because they'd gone for a healing rally and the person says, you must have absolute faith. You must have absolute belief that Jesus will heal you. Stop your medication. Stop all these other things. Just believe in Jesus. And they did it. And then they passed away. And everyone goes, uh, not enough faith. You know how that wrecks not just the person's faith, but every member of the family that goes there. So I want to be very clear, doctrinally, storms are not a sign of disobedience or punishment. And when I talk about storm here, I'm not talking about a literal storm, but in a way, symbolically, any storm, whether physical or internal, emotional, psychological anger, they're not a sign of your disobedience or punishment. That's not, not what they are. Storms are not a way to see if God has opened or closed a door for you. I get this a lot with some young adults. They say, I feel uh, I need a change in my job. Uh, but I'm waiting for the right opportunity. So if a, if a job offer comes along, that is God's way of telling me, this is the way. But if God closes that door, then, uh, okay, la, that's not God's way. Uh. We become a bit like Gideon. We put a cloth out there and say, God, if you are God and you want me to do this, uh, make this happen. That example of Gideon is a narrative of what you should not do. <laughs> but many people take it as, oh, I'm a, I, I want to be like Gideon. I want a clear sign like that. Then, then God is no longer a God you need to believe in. God is a bit like a lottery. Tell me and I will get the right strike every time. Storms are not the way to see if God has opened or closed a door for you. So what then is the purpose of storms? One, storms are a way for you to confront your fears. I had a number of friends who had been running from job to job. Every time they encounter some storm in their job, they decide, this is not for me, I'll quit and I'll go. And after many times of sitting down and going through counselling and coaching with them, we realised that the reason why they keep running was because they could not deal with an internal issue of their own. 
They did not want to acknowledge this great fear in themselves. It says, I am not able to do this. And they didn't want to deal with it. Sometimes you need to turn around and face this, fall, uh, this storm because it is the only way that you confront your fear. And if you're ever going to be courageous, you need to face it. And you need to go through it rather than around, over or under. These storms are some necessary things we need to face in order to grow and become more like Jesus. And a fourth one. Storms are always an invitation to believe, to trust, and to draw near to God. You see, when you are in a storm, you begin to be desperate because your life is at stake. And when you are desperate, you only have two choices. You either cling to God and say, Save me, God! Or else, you become like the disciples, Jesus, you don't care if we die. The same way how people turn to God and say, there is no God. You don't care. If you really cared, you'd save me. And so in the storms that we face, we are, you know, we're confronted with this issue. Are we drawing closer to God or are we angry and rebuking and pushing God away and saying, you're no use to me in this particular storm that I'm facing? What is Jesus' answer to them? Verse 39 says, He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Be quiet. Be still. Now, um, some of your older versions of the Bible, uh, King James or New King James version, would, might say, peace, be still. Very mild word. You know, Shalom, be still. Uh, but these are the same words, if you look towards uh, Mark chapter 1, these are the same words that he forcefully, imperative command to the demon, says, quiet, get out of that person. And Jesus commands it. The wind died down and it was completely calm. Now, I want to emphasize that word, completely calm. It is a translation of the Greek of uh, the second instance when the word mega is used. There is a mega storm at the beginning and there is a mega storm, mega calm after. This indication of extremes can only be seen as the author's way of saying God is at work. God is at work in all of this. We note there in verse 40 that he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And trust me, if you, if you were to take anything away from this particular sermon, I would suggest not an answer, but a question. 
Some of the questions in our life are more important than the answers. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? It is out of a desperate fear of death and loss. I don't know what some of you are afraid of. Sometimes I meet some people say, I'm not afraid to die. I'm afraid of the pain. I'm not afraid to die. I'm afraid of what will happen to the children. What will happen to my spouse. I'm afraid of other things. So this question that you encounter in every storm, you need to hear Jesus asking you the same question. Why are you so afraid? The the Greek of this term afraid is why are you so cowardly? Why are you so fearful? Why are you so overwhelmed by this thing? Do you still have no faith? Note this, Jesus is with them Jesus has been doing all these miracles and Jesus is still in their midst. Is it the case that sometimes you feel this way because you feel that God is not there? But what if God is there and He is leading you in and through the storm? Would you still have no faith? I don't want a God who is with me. I want a God who is going to sort all this out. He will, but not in the way you want to. He will do it in the way He wills. Now let me contrast this. Remember, there is a contrast between fear, desperation and death, and the other side, which is Jesus sleeping. Jesus is found to be doing something which you will find constantly repeated in the Psalms. And so sometimes when I have friends who are very fearful, I give them a few Psalms to think about. This is the first one. Before I give you the Psalm, the principle that's being established here is faithful trust is the only answer And faithful trust not in yourself, a faithful trust in God is the only answer to our desperate fears. I say that not just out of my experience, but experience of people who have lived many years. Many years. Some of the most successful people I've met, millionaires, come and say to me, I'm still fearful. I cannot sleep at night. I'm very stressed. I mean, when they have enough honesty to search their hearts, they realize, I'm afraid that I might fail. I work so hard and I'm so anxious about many things because I'm I'm fearful of failure. I don't want to fail my wife. I don't want to fail my children. I don't want to fail myself. But friends, we are mortal. We are not God. And the only thing that will never fail is God. You will. And so if your faith is in your ability, my dear friends, you need a reality check. Every powerful, successful person I've encountered has had to deal with this greatest fear. The fear that they are not in control. The fear that they will fail. And I have to confront you in the fact with It is a real fear because it is true. And the sooner you deal with this, 
and place your trust in the right place, in God, the sooner it is that you get over this fear. Jesus is not just doing something uh, that is, you know, the disciples would tend to indicate as if he is apathy, he doesn't care, or he's very tired. But the reality is Jesus is demonstrating something which is very constant in the Psalms. So these Psalms I sometimes give to friends when they cannot sleep. They say, in Psalm 3, verse 5, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. It's a reminder to yourself. And so do this, my dear friends. You know, some people, they're, they're, they're very stressed out and they work even harder to try and solve the problem. So what I tell them is, no, all your striving and all that is opposed to what God says when He says, be still and know that I am God. And so what we tell people, speak this to your soul. I am going to lie down and sleep. And if I wake again... <laughs> It is because the Lord sustains me. He is sovereign. He is in charge. I am not. So for better or for worse, I have done my best and I leave the rest to God. This next verse, uh, I posted it on my Facebook profile and it received the most number of likes I've seen in a long time. It says in, uh, let me see if I can see it clearly here as well. Psalm 4, verse 8. Psalm 4, verse 8. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 4, verse 8. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. These are Psalms of David. David is a man of war, a man of violence, a man well acquainted with political intrigue, a man acquainted with a son who wants to murder him. And he says, in peace, I will lie down and sleep. You alone, Lord, you make me dwell in safety. How many of us need to say that to our souls? Huh? You know, you are my shield. You are my safety. You alone. Not me, not the wealth, not the control that I have or the dominion or the kingdom that I have, but only in God. And this Psalm 1 to 1 verse 3. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I can go to sleep because the one who does not sleep, God, he's in charge and he's watching over all these things. I'm just giving you three out of many. There are Psalms in Isaiah, there are Psalms everywhere that talk about the fact that we are not in control, God is sovereign and he will watch over you. You, net, you need to let things be as they are, and surrender. But guess what? There is a psalm, Psalm 107, verses 22 to 32. 
This psalm depicts the situation in which the, uh, the disciples are in, on the boat. It reads, Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, His wonderful deeds in the deep. For He spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. It's amazing how sometimes, you know, you have an epiphany. An epiphany is when you encounter a revelation of God. The disciples, the followers of Jesus on the boat, these hardened, seasoned boatmen, encountered an epiphany when they met the living God. And they were rightly terrified. He had this power. I also encountered an epiphany when I read in Psalm 107, something written long time ago in the Psalms that perfectly mirrors what Jesus is doing. You just get this, aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's a fulfillment of what Jesus is going to do. All scripture points to Jesus. Verse 41 ends with this. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. This is the third time in this short passage where the word mega is used. It is attached to this word mega terrified, mega fearful. Great storm, great calm, great fear of the Lord. This great fear of the Lord is the one that causes us to either shrink away from God or draw close to Him. It's a question which I pose to you as well. I had this earlier question, why are you so afraid? And my answer to you is, that only Jesus can take you away from your desperate fears because in Him is the answer to all of life's out-of-controlness. He's the only one in control, no one else. And so then you must ask this question, who then is this Jesus to you? Not for your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, or the pastor. Who then is this Jesus is man whom you have counted. Who is he to you? Let me end with these thoughts for you. Sometimes God saves us from trouble. Sometimes he saves us in trouble. And sometimes he saves us from death. And sometimes he uses our death to glorify his name. You may not believe this, but... Uh, it is generally true that many Christian martyrs, it is by their death that God is glorified. 
I just need to quote two to you. You would recall that a few years back, ISIS executed and beheaded 20 Egyptians and Syrians, Christian, Coptic Christians at a beach. And as a result of them, you would think that oh, ISIS would have uh, successfully terrorized the whole of the nation. Instead, a couple of years, uh, a couple of months back, the bodies finally returned back. And when it returned back to their village, they are celebrating these people as martyrs of the faith. Because the people there say, ISIS think that they can break our faith. But what they fail to realize is that the more they drive us with fear, the closer we come to God. And we celebrate that our brothers did not give up the faith. These are the mothers, huh? the wives, the children. They say that what these brothers have done has strengthened our faith because they believe and know that this is true. So sometimes... God uses our death to glorify His name. In the same way that Christ Jesus died on the cross, that through His death, God will be glorified. The lesson for the disciples is that Jesus is equal to any threat that may threaten and shatter human life, not just now, but for the everlasting. Faith flings wide open the doors of what is possible and how we can receive God's power to overcome. But it also casts out all fear for perfect love casts out all fear. Will your fear of the Lord turn to absolute trust in Jesus or will it be a desertion and a rebuke of God? Let me repeat that again. Will your fear of the Lord turn to absolute trust in Jesus or will it instead turn to a rebuke and a rejection of God? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in writing about the cause of discipleship and how we encounter a crisis of faith, said this, those who encounter this fear and this crisis of faith, he says to them, you are disobedient. You are trying to keep some part of your life under your own control. That is what is preventing you from listening to Christ and believing His grace. You cannot hear Christ because you are willfully disobedient in surrendering all things into His hands. Somewhere in your heart, you are refusing to listen to His call and your difficulty is your sin. Only those who obey can believe and those who believe can obey. Only those who obey can believe and only those who believe can obey. It's a tough call huh, following Jesus. <laughs> I have to confront my fears. But my brothers and sisters, I pray that you will face your fear because only then can you grow. Only then will you be transformed uh, to be the fullness of Christ. Let us pray. Dear Lord, at times your answer seems so simple and yet it is one of the hardest things to do. Faith is a hope and a belief and a trust in things not yet seen. And we remind ourselves, Lord, in life and in death, 
that we live by faith and not by sight. Help us, Lord, to overcome the fears that we often put into our minds and our hearts, that in our forms of desperation, when we think that we are in control, help us to surrender full control over to you, our Lord and our Saviour, the only one who is able to save. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.